0: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space, this is Lorenzo and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon and I'm very pleased today to begin by thanking some of our fellow saloners who have made donations that are going to be used to keep the salon rolling next year as we begin our Psychedelic Salon 2.0 adventure. And these fine souls are Scott M., Spendon P., David A., Michael N., Todd C., Jamie B., and Frank N., who not only made a donation to the salon... He also made recordings of this year's Palenque Norte Lectures. To be honest, uh, when I heard that Pez wasn't going to be able to make it to the burn this year, well, I was kind of afraid to ask if anybody would be picking up the slack of recording the talks because, well, that's a big job and uh, is very thankless in that hot uh, situation they're involved in. But uh, thanks to Camp Soft Landing and the wonderful people involved in that camp, the Palenque Norte lectures were once again featured on the Playa at Burning Man. And uh, thanks to Frank N., we are going to get to hear them here in the Salon. And uh, yes, this means that I'll probably be doubling up on these podcasts a bit between now and March so that I can uh, squeeze in the Palenque Norte talks along with the as yet unheard Terrence McKenna talks. And uh, speaking of Terrence... Let's join him right now for the third session of his August 1997 workshop, which he titled, Our Cyber-Spiritual Future. ...be
1: susceptible to this. We should be going uh, the way out of this kind of foolishness. The, the, the true mysteries of this world do not require your connivance or belief in order to exist... They're able to exist quite independently, thank you, whether you believe in them or not. On the other hand, all forms of fraud and duplicity require the cooperation of the mark. That's you if you're buying into these things. You know, the, the pocket is picked because the mark is asleep. The pockmarked crone can be passed off as a beauty because the mark is preconditioned to want to make the sale. We, uh, psychedelics should liberate people from the tyranny of, uh, of these projections from the unconscious. And it's very fascinating to me to see how the defenders of these strange points of view, how phobic they are of psychedelics. They understand that psychedelics are a blowtorch to their ice cube. They don't want to get near it. You know, they used to have the excuse that they, even though they were going to spend a lifetime criticizing psychedelics, they couldn't invest six hours to find out what it was about. Well, so then we brought them DMT, which lasts five minutes. So now the new excuse is, well, as a professional person I don't choose to break the law fine here's some alpha salvanorine. it's unscheduled it lasts five minutes it'll cut your head off Uh, will you do it? and they say well uh, no I have a heart murmur or I have an appointment in twenty minutes or something there is absolute terror to confront the reality of what this represents And it's interesting who's afraid. Scientists are afraid. They say, well, I would lose my objectivity and we don't do it like that. I'm the observer, not the experiment. And we like to have things kind of off where we can handle them. So scientists don't want to do it. They sense it would destroy their ontology. And neither do the enthusiasts of the unanchored weird. They don't want to do it either. Because they say it rends your aura and uh, uh, you know uh, d- redistributes your chi in unpleasant ways. And uh, anyway, Baba said not to. And on and on and on and on and on. So it's you know we are apparently that statistically favored few that quite by chance, I suppose, in our lives managed to thread our way between the cilia and sharpness of these of these uh, I, my mind's already made up, don't confuse me with facts, positions. Um, the only path in to the supernormal that I found are the psychedelics. Uh, everywhere else I found chicanery and fraud. I mean, I went to India, I visited some of the greats, and I just found, you know, uh, the, the eagerness with which they sought to determine whether you had any acid with you was a strong indicator of the power of their own spiritual methods, you know. Mainly, they wanted to score it's a sobering thing to have the teacher you came 10,000 miles uh, to see uh, try to get you to cut loose three hits. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it's fun to be a free person, it's fun to not depend on an institution, an ideology, and the other person, a place time and it's very hard to sell this form of fun. Uh, people are afraid. people have been disempowered I think through the process of uh, juvenilization that we described last night. People define themselves as, as frightened children you know they want methods, gurus, partners, safe havens, stipends, sabbaticals they just want all these things to make it easier for themselves but they don't make them easier for you if you have all that you will be soft and mushy beyond reclamation Uh, you know you will contribute nothing to the human adventure, you don't want to just be a placeholder, there's no glory in being able to say yeah, the 20th century yeah, I, I lived through it Contributed nothing, said nothing, had nothing to say about it, but I lived through it. A lot of people didn't live through it. Uh, You might consider that you're standing in their shoes and act out of uh, a commitment to uh, them and what they might have achieved. You know, I think about, I think often, strangely enough, about Anton Verbern, who's one of the great modernists of European music. Webern was killed in the streets of Vienna in 1945 by an American GI for stealing a loaf of bread. You know, this this is what happened to European culture in the aftermath of the Second World War. We have been incredibly privileged in the 20th century. Europe has been smashed to dust twice in the 20th century all its dreams all its assumptions all its hopes cast into the frying pan we had nothing like that and uh, again I think it permits an enormous amount of foolishness in our society and an, and an unwillingness to to, uh, to take things seriously really these things are not playthings. fascism Futurism, communism, Uh, these things can ignite and consume whole societies. That means human lives. Uh, If we're really serious about new paradigms, I think we have to go uh, to the bedrock of experience. It's not about rearranging or reshuffling the ideological deck. That's why the the psychedelic experience is such a potentially liberating and revivifying thing, uh, because it is an experience. And we have somehow traded out our experience over the past several hundred years You know, it's a truism that television is geared at the 12-year-old mind. It's probably a generous truism. Millions and millions of people live larval, low-awareness lives, warehoused in the burbs, plugged into Costco and the telly and... uh, and as long as the magazine subscriptions stay subscribed and the credit cards continue to be serviced, the illusion that there is life happening here is allowed to to continue.
2: Do you, you know, I know that you you touched upon. I, guess if I have a question that I'll get into why I'm asking the question. But it's hard to focus my thought moment because you're moving so fast in so many different areas that uh, just my ideas are slipping away, as I'm trying to find a way to express them but I guess this, this topic right now begs this question is that we're created in an equal, all of us with an equal amount of enlightenment and all of us with an equal genetic sort of ability and, and, and if you look at the world as an organism as some people might do and as you look at an ant colony and there are certain functions within the different, you know different types of, uh, of beings within that, within that same uh, s- society that have different roles that do two different things and you look at the human culture that perhaps there's a, you know, and, 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 and if the world is an organism, that perhaps there is a function and, and for those people that are in the suburbs, you know, doing those things, perhaps that that's, there's only a certain amount of capacity within those people, and with, with various people have different capacities, and certain people that are going to find their way to enlightenment are perhaps more able on other levels beyond, know, you know, not everyone's endowed with the same amount of ability to get there in the first place. And, and I was curious what you thought about. That kind of theory, because I know you're, you know, the, co- the sort of uh, coevolution of man and, and, and mushroom and sort of bringing man to another, uh, to an enlightened state through the coevolution of those two together. Um, perhaps there were certain areas that were left behind or certain people that maybe are less affected by that coevolution or different cultures and within, within the world culture. and uh, you know, I marvel at, I can't find an explanation myself for why certain people just refuse to open their minds at any point. There's no way to penetrate, and perhaps it's because that mind isn't there.
1: Well, this is this thing where I say culture is not your friend, and those people being warehoused and hooked up to the TV and the burbs, they're the people who didn't find this out in time. You know, and now our mainlining culture, and it is, you know, in terms of cutting your social effectiveness, it's as effective as heroin. So, uh, but I don't think it's always been like this. I think society has, culture has always been somewhat unfriendly to the individual, but it's only within the 20th century that all this has been understood explicitly, and some people have set out to use these facts against the rest of us. Modern advertising. I mean, modern advertising, advertising, the impulse of advertising, is to inform you of what is available in the marketplace. Seems a harmless and reasonable thing. You, you should know what is available in the marketplace. But then comes the psychology of advertising. And then this is to pick your pocket and make you buy things whether you need them or not. And it does it by, um, first of all, inculcating in you a feeling of helplessness and inferiority unless you drive this car, wear these shoes, this cologne. Uh, so it, it you diminish the customer in order to aggrandize the product. But notice that the customer is a human being. The product is a thing. Uh, this begins to look like a crime against humanity. We, you, modern marketing travels on um, ungratified desire. Show people that you know. E- even if you buy the twelve thousand dollar car the $75,000 car would make you so much happier. And, of course, true ecstasy is the $200,000 car. So there's no satisfaction, no uh, limit. And uh, at the tail end of this process is completely unexamined policies of resource extraction, uh, abuse of the environment... Uh, and we tend to think that you can't do it any other way, that this vast consumer economy is the only way a modern civilization could possibly function. But in fact, it's a self-limiting potlatch of some sort. Uh, do you all know what a potlatch is? A potlatch is among the Northwest Coast Indians. It's an interesting approach to consumerism. Among the Northwest Coast Indians... Gift-giving is a big deal. But the potlatch is when you, you can give so much gifts that you can burn them. This is considered the highest form of consumerism among the Haida and these people, is to burn all the physical goods. And uh, uh, it's a form of display. I mean, these things cost money and are fine objects, but you destroy them uh, to prove uh, uh, essentially how much money and power you have. Well, we're in that situation. Everything is disposable. Everything is throwaway. Uh, 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 And growing away from this is very difficult. I mean, it essentially requires... Uh, responsibility and integrity, which is the last thing anybody wants to hear. You know, they want to hear that I don't know, chelated enzymes, or a particular form of therapy, or darshan with guru ma, or something else is going to make it all all right. No, just individual moral responsibility is is the basis for Intelligent existence. And this should be obvious to most people, except that the cacophony of the marketplace is making it so hard to figure this out. Did you? Yeah.
3: I'm interested in in how a lot of the things that you've been discussing relate to what you allude to as living in the imagination. Uh, You know, talking about cultural limitations uh, makes me think about limited patterns of perception and what psychedelics seem to help you do is decondition you from those previous limited patterns of perception give you a glimpse of what is possible although you try too quickly to define it you, you fail the intelligence test as you say because what is trying to help you to glimpse is what is beyond another level of limitation uh, and culture can be like a group mind that you buy into. That's a very limited pattern of thinking. Uh, Technologies, cutting edge technologies like nanotechnology, seem to be moving in the direction of living in the imagination. That is what previously is only envisioned is now materialized. And again, psychedelics seem to intimate that. The experience itself seems to point towards what is previously thought of as beyond the possible, as now an opening towards envisioning that possibility. Uh, And again, you allude to a future vision of living in the imagination, the union of spirit and matter, and that's kind of the common theme that that I pick up with a lot of the things that are being discussed here, and I'm curious... You know, what
1: your, what your concepts are? Well, the reason I think psychedelics are an antidote to this commodification and juvenilization is because they not only dissolve boundaries, but they also show you inner worth. In other words, they show you that you, who you previously dismissed, have more beauty in your head than... Cartier's and Tiffany's and all the rest of it put together so you don't need to go to Henry Winston or Harry Winston or Cartier's you have inner worth you don't need a car a house uh, of great expense uh, and then the other thing is These technologies are allowing us to vivify the imagination and to make it very real. In fact, to make it something we can walk into. Uh, I tried it out on my staff group and it didn't seem to get very far, but I really think every single one of us should be learning how to expand our communication skills. Uh, that this is our task for the rest of our lives to learn how to communicate with each other to communicate verbally by touch but also accept these technologies I've spent the last six weeks learning how to three-dimensionally model objects and then animate them texture map them color them uh, because I've spent my whole life clawing the air and raving about hallucinations, and no one could ever see what I meant. But if I will cancel all engagements and work at my terminal for six months, I'll come back with 30 seconds of film, that w- I'll just say, that's that's my best shot, to the limit of my present acquisition of skills Here's what I'm seeing. So, you know, it's not about rejecting the media or the marketplace. It's about changing your relationship to it. Do not consume. Produce. Into the vacuum of the producer-consumer relationship, inject your own art. Make sure that you are producing not consuming, because the one stultifies marginalizes and and creates a, a juvenile uh, attitude, and the producing actually raises the sum total of consciousness of of the human species uh, what we 're debating and talking about now myself and my friends is trying to get someone to endow uh, a prize that we would sneak onto the internet in the first stage as the psychedelic simulation prize. In other words, a a $5,000 prize awarded once a year, a small statue of a smiling man, we'll call it the Tim. You can win the Tim if you, for producing uh, the best three-dimensional animation of a mental landscape. Well, probably from now till 2000, these will simply be videos, quick-time movies. But sometime beyond 2000, these will become virtu- VRML-coded virtual realities, and people will begin to walk into them and we'll still call it the prize for psychedelic simulation. But notice that once you can walk around inside these things, they become much more uh, present. And, uh, you know, one of the things we've talked about over the past week is that I don't believe alien spaceships are visiting Earth to pull our chestnuts out of the fire or to do anything else of much interest but I do think there is an alien presence Uh, it's non-material you contact it in the psychedelic experience it's non-material well then what is the nature of the alien presence well its nature is informational it is made of information well uh, you know how in all all flying saucer cults and all B-movies of the 50s, there's always the, the awareness of the possibility of contact, and then there is the landing zone has to be created. And in Close Encounters, it was Devil's Tower out in Wyoming. This seems to be part of the archetype of the alien. What the alien needs to manifest among us is a suitable landing zone. And people say, well, the Nazca Lines, that was the landing zone. That's pretty lame. I mean, I won't even bother to deconstruct it. Uh, Surely, if you can come from Zenebel Ganubi, uh, you don't need airport running lights to be waiting for you when you get here. Uh, So, the landing zone. And I'm beginning to think that... uh, In a sense, the Internet is a net to catch an alien. And the way you catch the alien is by writing the weirdest code you think you can think of and integrating it into all the other weird code you can find. Let's set out to build a virtual reality as alien as we can possibly make it. And if we connect our psychedelically empowered imagination to our coding fingers, we will discover when the chore is done that the thing we have created is so alien that it could only be the alien and that, in fact, the contact is now underway because where the alien is is in some non-local bell sphere of universally accessible information. In other words, the imagination is like a field of data that is at the bell level of connectivity in the quantum mechanical universe. And there are aliens somewhere, galaxies away, tens of thousands, tens of millions of light years away. I mean, it's preposterous to assume that this is the only life in the universe, the only intelligent life in the universe. It's also pretty preposterous to assume that we are being physically visited by 16 different kinds of intelligent life. It means you just don't understand the distances involved, the time scales involved, what relativity has to say about approaching the speed of light, and so forth and so on. No, physically, we are alone. Physically. But in the imagination, we're surrounded by distant friends, and their whisperings are our science, our mathematics, our religions, our culture. Uh, There may be many forms of intelligence in the universe whose thoughts are blowing through us at any given moment. Most of it, it's not on a humanly cognizable scale, in other words, it's either to something this way or to something that way. And when you look at it, you just say, you know, for me, a human being, this is noise. But out of these many hundreds, thousands, millions of cross-channels of co-present bell, bell data, some are enough like ourselves that we can at least discern resonances. And out of those resonances, then we form the images of these, uh, of these entities. Uh, I, I haven't seen the movie Contact, but I understand there is a message, and when you decode it, you build a machine, and then you go there. That's the plot. I would just change the plot to say uh, there is a message, when you decode it, it tells you how to build a virtual reality, and then they are here. It, there's no dramatic. Well, that's to yeah, yeah. It's to really? When so they
2: so go, go through, to, go through a wormhole.
1: Yeah. Well, see, I don't think the wormhole is open all the time. When you look into the imagination to the degree that you can decondition your human expectations, the data will become more and more alien. I mean I you know I have done this with the mushroom I've taken it gotten stabilized in it and comfortable and then said to it okay we're cruising now show me what you are for yourself don't give me the the version stamped suitable for human consumption give me the straight shot Well, then the temperature begins to fall, black draperies rise, there's an enormous organ tone, and after about 30 seconds of that, you say, uh, could we go back to the suitable for human consumption version of this? because the the it, to the degree that it truly bears its essence mm-hmm. you just shrink in absolute cosmic horror from what it is because what it is is you know it's the mind that stretches between the galaxies. It's the thing, you know, it saw the coming of the Rul 500 million years ago. It knows the history of the local group. It possesses technologies that are so beyond the paltry imagination of man that for decency to even hint of these things is to transgress... uh, to some degree so it comes as it can be understood so it's a kind of mental calisthenics to train for it a friend of mine said every time I take mushrooms uh, my goal is to stand more to stand more and say to it okay here I am again let's start where we left off I'm ready to try and stand more so people who think this is some kind of a lark or some kind of... Don't really... They are skimming the back of the beast. They're never really... It can take you further than you want to go. It won't, usually. It's usually quite benign. It seems to sense our limitations. But if you present yourself as a warrior, it will give you a warrior's death experience and uh, and then the key coming out of all this is that the second part of it is the download and we've been having these astonishing experiences now for 30 40 years very hard to communicate with each other now we have the tools the 3D modeling the animation uh, anybody can learn these things in a few weeks of application Uh, and we need a higher definition higher dimension language than small mouth noises to convey this stuff we need to be able to see what we mean we need to let other people see what we mean. We need to be able to freeze these incredibly complicated images and modalities so that we can then analyze them aesthetically, mathematically, energetically and write papers about them and talk about it. I mean, this is, uh, this is the great new frontier, the human imagination. You know, it's only been 400 years since we discovered the lost half of this planet. I mean, you think we've got a hold on reality? That's how lame our story is. 400 years ago, it was a matter of debate if there was North and South America. And, you know, people just kept pushing and pushing. And sure enough, real estate beyond anybody's wildest dreams. Well, I think there's real estate in the imagination I think it's the country we're all going to live in we're we're like English colonials restless with a mad king and waiting to book passage to the new worlds of America you know our sails are filling the technologies exist to do it and in 200 years it wouldn't surprise me if the imagination was, you know, the major industrial and population center uh, of the human world. People say, "Well, what does that mean?" Well, who knows? And why do you care? It's it's uh, it's uh, of the nature of a, of a of an inevitability, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Are uh, we have exhausted the exterior? World, and yet the interior world beats like an enormous uncharted ocean uh, and what, are, what is ordinary historical consciousness but a tiny island protruding above that ocean so as we grow in sophistication and, uh, and in our sense of who we are and what we want to do in the cosmos extremely exciting destinies I think, will unfold for us. We've just fought our way out of the jungle, away from the influence of the glaciers. We've lopped off the heads of the other megafauna on this planet so we can have a little breathing room. Now we need to ask the question, you know, what is it all for? What is it all for? It can't be for uh, masturbatory consumerism and... uh, and uh, gratification of the historical ego at the expense of all future generations. We've flopped on the seamy side quite long enough. It's time to be up and about uh, the great and exciting business of being uh, truly human for the first time. All right, that's the morning session. I'm going to have to round. Thank you very much. I hope you get uh, massaged and uh, so forth. I will be back at 4. I wish I could stay, but I'm here so briefly. Okay, well, uh, let's see here. I have one thing to put before you, which is just so you know how current we are and how cutting edge, I can tell you that this book called Bots, The Origin of a New Species by Andrew Leonard, will receive a rave review in tomorrow's Sunday New York Times, which is not yet printed, Uh, uh, and this is a book about the rise of AI. These bots, as you know, info bots, all kinds of bots running around on the internet, tracking down facts for you, doing all sorts of things. Uh, they are probably the, the embryogenic precursors of the kind of artificial intelligence that we've been talking about. I just, This book was a gift to me, and I've just been looking through it, and uh, it really looks like lots of fun and uh, definitely cutting-edge stuff uh, probably won't be carried in the bookstore, at least not for a while. But that's BOTS, The Origin of a New Species by Andrew Leonard. Which one's in L- Leonard, L-E-O-N-A-R-D. And it's a uh, hardwired book. They're having a rough week up there, too. quite a week for turmoil in cyberspace.
3: Jeremy? Yeah? Um, I don't know what direction you're fixing it go but uh, Even though this might be familiar territory for a lot of people here, possibly it's the first time I've heard you in, in this workshop and I was wondering if you could address some of the practical considerations of like the various psychedelics and which ones that you feel have more value or why um, the importance of setting and setting and approaching the psychedelic experience. Just your view. Well,
1: yeah, my... My own psychedelic experience, I was pretty much very typical, I think, of people of my age and situation. Uh, I began to hear about sometime in the late, I guess in the early 60s it must have been, I read The Doors of Perception And it was fascinating to me, but I had no access to mescaline or anything else, nor any knowledge of pharmacology or botany. Uh, And I then became interested in the counterculture, and I subscribed to the Evergreen Review. I think I was the only person west of the Mississippi River who was getting the Evergreen Review in 1961, 62, 63 and there was, you know, they were publishing people like the French surrealist André Michaud. They were publishing, uh, they published parts of Terry Southern's book, Red Dirt Marijuana. And uh, I just became obsessed with locating these things. My first attempt to get high was I had heard that morning glories would get yeah. you high. So I went out and gathered bindweed, which is this little morning glory like you see along the highways here, and, you know, had a hell of a stomachache. Uh, the first of many uh, in pursuit of this. And then I... Uh, I uh, it wasn't until 63, 64, when I was a senior in high school, that the last... The semester of my senior year in high school, I went to Berkeley for Christmas vacation and finally was able to score some uh, cannabis and smoked it all up. And it didn't seem to do what I had expected, but I was able to do incredible verbal performances extemporaneous feats of heavy lifting i could i could make up pseudo chapters of of melville's moby dick i could just fall into these rhetorical things and rave but it didn't was didn't seem to be getting me off uh, from my own point of view and then I went back down to Southern California to Lancaster, where I was going to school of all places. And, uh, Captain Beefheart graduated from the same high school I did. Uh, <laughs> uh, antelope Valley Joint Union High School District. In, yeah. Oh, there's the antelope. Huh? Zappa also geniuses just were pouring out of this school. Uh, And uh, my friend and I began, we would take, we found a source of uh, morning glory seeds, the real kind. And we would grind them up and put them in milkshakes and go out into the Mojave Desert. And I never had the explicit visionary eyes in the dark Breakthrough because we didn't know how to do it. But we we would look at the desert, and I remember it always, it became more significant. Everything looked significant, and if you rego- recall the vocabulary of uh, doors of perception, it was that kind of thing. He said everything was glowing with iskite, and there's a lot of eyes open stuff going on. Then I got to Berkeley, or before I went, I left Lancaster, came to San Francisco, got a job that summer, and across the hall, in this flop house where my friend and I live, was uh, this very peculiar guitar-plucking character, who later turned out to be uh, Barry Melton of Country Joe and the Fish, the guitarist. And it was just a few months after this that they brought out that album, Electric Music for the Mind and the Body, which was, you know, it was very happening. And I took acid that summer, Sandoz LSD, uh, in those little white capsules, and uh, finally grabbed it one night on Green Street and just went... Completely f- came to pieces. In fact, disgraced myself in several dimensions that nobody's ever been willing to explain to me fully since. I gather my sexuality, my bowels, my everything else just went into a tizzy.
4: Um,
1: and then, you know, and, and so that was, I was sort of like following the track. Many people were having these kinds of experiences at just that time. Uh, But then uh, in in February of 1967, I sort of found my way at the front of the parade uh, when one rainy evening in Berkeley, this friend of mine, who I'm still extremely tight with, and this guy... Always was first in everything and you know he made it his business to burn through and abandon things before you'd ever heard of them and he arrived at my house this rainy February night and he said I have something I want you to try and I said what is it and he said it's a new psychedelic and I said how long does it last and he said three minutes and I said (laughs) pfft no problem, you know, we're acid heads, we, we can handle three minutes of anything and sat down and smoked my first uh, DMT and uh, you know, it's never been the same since, I mean it worked a hundred percent yes, this was the famous 55 gallon drum that was boosted off a uh, army Uh, conveyance vehicle when it was moved from SRI to uh, some proving ground in the southwest. The U.S. Army was trying to develop an aerosol artillery shell that would land in a Vietnamese village drive everyone nuts and you could send your people in and take over in all this gaseous hallucinogenic confusion. And DMT and even then more debilitating psychedelics were being looked at in the service of this. And it's a famous story in the underground that there was this one 55 gallon drum of pure crystalline material that somebody just made sure fell into a ditch in Menlo Park somewhere. (laughs) And somebody else came along five minutes later and picked it up. And rumor persists that that 55-gallon drum is not empty yet. (laughs) Uh, Apocryphal stories abound of burial sites uh, near Hudson's Bay in uh, the deserts of the Namib, other places uh, it's been moved around even the dome of the rock was indicated at one time (laughs) so I don't suggest you go looking for it under the dome of the rock anyway uh, DMT really uh, it it, uh, we had to then do our own research we weren't getting information from the culture about DMT it was talking about LSD and this and that And the first thing you find out when you look into what DMT is, and at that time it was true, was that uh, it occurs in a lot of plants. Later, Wade Davis, uh, on and on, were just this amazing ethnographic and chemical data was like being downloaded out of the Amazon and declassified. And it just was revealing the entire picture. Of, an, of a shamanic hallucinogenic religion and having smoked DMT you know we were inside from the start I mean we knew that this was was just uh, the most important thing to ever come down the pike and so quickly for myself and my friends the emphasis shifted toward how can we extend this experience because If you've smoked DMT and you're like me, it's very hard to grab onto. While it's happening, it's the most intense experience you've ever had. But it's so strange. And there may even be a physiological um, uh, tendency for it not to transcript into short-term memory. Because when you come down from a DMT trip, it's like awakening from a dream you just you have this kind of crazy sense that something has just been happening and it was all around you and now it's gone so we wanted to uh, understand how can you get in there for longer and we tried simple things like taking it at the top of LSD trips this is a hell of a launch but it doesn't particularly prolong it. It maybe doubles the, the time from three minutes to six. But we were saying, you know, if you could get in there for an hour, you could learn something. You could bring something back. That was always the goal, to bring something back, an idea, an artifact, an equation, something. Well, further uh, research indicated then Uh, and I think probably the key source here is uh, that book that William Burroughs and Alan Ginsberg did in the late 60s called The Yahay Letters, where I can't remember what the order of it is. I think Ginsberg goes down looking for it, writes letters back to Burroughs. Burroughs then goes down a year later looking for it, writes letters back to Ginsberg. Uh, Ginsburg is comes off as somewhat of a nervous Nelly in that book. Uh, he didn't really care for it. It was a bit much for him. Burroughs, of course, ever the trooper, was completely gung-ho. And so this brought up the issue of, Io- of Yahe, which is what ayahuasca is called north of the... Putumayo River as a general as a generalization. Well then in the meantime other things were happening for me. I went to Israel. I I tried to emigrate to the Seychelles Islands. I spent time in India. I was a smuggler an art dealer. Then I got in trouble for the smuggling so I had to hide out from that. So I went to Indonesia to be a butterfly collector and that for the first time plunged me on a day-to-day basis for months into the heart of tropical true tropical nature which i had never seen before i mean i was born in colorado raised in california uh, i had never been to the equatorial tropics yeah
2: starting at berkeley what were you doing then because it's not like your interest in botany
1: Well, when I first went to Berkeley, I accepted entry into an experimental college called the Tussman Experimental Program. And I went two years to Berkeley, 65, 67, no, 65, 67, 67, 68, and then I left. And then when I returned years later in 72, I majored in uh, systems theory and ecology and botany. And I actually had a self-directed major in shamanism. Uh, I had written The Invisible Landscape with my brother at that time. And I just sort of presented that as a series... Whenever they wanted me to write a paper, I'd submit a chapter from the <laughs> book I'd already written. <laughs> it was sort of the and the plant
2: connection of it that
1: led you in that direction. Yeah, absolutely. Before that, I had... In my life, in the course of my life, I had had sort of a love affair between the natural sciences and the sciences. I mean, the natural sciences and the humanities. Like when I was a little kid, when I was seven... I was a rock collector, a fossil collector, a butterfly collector. Well, then around age 10, I read, I think, uh, Aldous Huxley or maybe a Julian Huxley essay that sneered at all that and introduced this concept of the humanities. I didn't even know what they were. I said, oh, humanities, literature, philosophy, and art. So then I became a... I just charged into that the reason i even encountered the doors of perception was because i was reading all of aldous huxley's novels you know this 13 year old kid reading chrome yellow antique hay after many a summer dies the swan these extremely arch novels of english social life in the 20s i mean and I, was, and I became uh, obsessed with modern art in this small, narrow-minded town where I lived. It was a good way to get in everybody's face was to go around saying, you know, Jackson Pollock is a genius. You may not think so, but you're an idiot. Uh, and, you know, I, there was a period in my life where I formed my taste by saying I liked what I didn't like. And inevitably, these were good choices because I was raised in an ecology that valued Norman Rockwell, Rock of Ages, Silent Night, Rosemary Clooney, and, uh, you know, and I said, no, no, Jackson Pollock, Samuel Beckett, Jean Genet, Carl Jaspers, Martin Heidegger. I didn't know what these things meant. I just knew they were mantras that kept straight people away. Um, (laughs) so anyway when I went to Indonesia I saw this tropical nature but absent psychedelics there were none I mean there was uh, fine Sumatran cannabis which I kept prodigious amounts with me at all times but there were no real psychedelics but the butterflies and I really was sort of retracing the steps of Alfred uh, Wallace uh, who was the in the person who discovered evolution and i sort of felt although i'm not given to past lifeism or any of that i felt a very strong connection to wallace and i had his journals which were 120 years old at that time and i went to the places he went to and i collected the butterflies he collected and i observed the plants he observed and I thought about complexity and diversity and all these issues, and, uh, and, I, and I also processed my experiences in India, which had not been happy. I mean, I found India to be a spiritual desert, you know, full of con artists and weasels of every variety. Uh, and I was better prepared than most. I mean, I I had studied Adyavadita Vedanta and I was serious, you know. I at one point thought I would be a Tibetan scholar until I actually studied with lamas and learned how hellishly complex the Tibetan language actually is. And one of the things that is... Has shaped my intellectual life is I have enormous facility with English. I can speak no other language with any facility whatsoever. I have failed uh, German, Hebrew, Spanish, Tibetan, Portuguese, Italian, and there must be a few others. That are just despair of. So that, that made it clear to me, well, a life of scholarship, you can never be a, a Tibetan scholar. You can never be a number of things because you have this funny blockage. Uh, and the conclusion from looking at Indonesian nature and looking at Asian spirituality as experienced up front was I should go to the Amazon. And in a way, we had always known this. Uh, it's not like we weren't as dumb as I'm making it sound. It was just a matter of working through all this stuff and getting to it. And finally, in 1971, my brother and myself and, and uh, uh, several other people, well-prepared, well-prepared by even the standards of today. I meet people today who are going down there to look for drugs and enlightenment, who haven't done the homework that I was able to do in 1971. but And then went to Colombia, and we were pursuing a very rare hallucinogen. Uh, It's called Ufkuhe. It's known only to three very small tribes down there. The Witoto, the the, uh, Muinani, and the Bora. Uh, and uh, it's a DMT drug that is taken orally and the reports in the Boston Museum Botanical leaflets said they use it to see little people and this was, I don't think I mentioned part of why we were so into this is because the thing that is so unbelievable even by psychedelic standards about the DMT flash is that it's inhabited It's not simply a reorganization of brain states or an insight about your sexuality or your anything. It's a place full of beings that are frantically trying to communicate with you, beings that are far weirder than any of the beings that haunt the tabloids uh, in the supermarket. I mean, real aliens, aliens that don't even seem to be exactly made of ordinary space and time, but an intelligence. And I knew, having grown up with this kind of scientific thing in my background, that from a scientific point of view, it was either impossible or that we had made a great discovery. And I still think that we made a great discovery I mean, it was sort of like the discovery of America. There were already millions of people living there when it was discovered. But nevertheless, for, for white boys in the middle class in Berkeley, it was, we were definitely making a discovery that these drugs don't distort reality or expand reality or they introduce you to entirely new and utterly unsuspected realities, realities that confound reason. And, and this, you see, this is what I had been looking for. I, I wanted a miracle, a real miracle, not a miracle where you had to bow down and wear a dhoti and sweep up around the ashram and kowtow to the... You know, a real miracle, And as far as I know, and I haven't had to change my opinion since 1971, DMT is a miracle. I mean, it's like being struck by noetic lightning. It's the one thing that you've convinced yourself is impossible. Whatever that thing is that you have managed to convince yourself is impossible smoke DMT and it will just kick open the door of your apartment and take you prisoner you know, rotate the wheels on your after death vehicle balance them, present the bill and depart up the chimney uh, it's really something uh, there's nothing like it this side of the yawning gray so I determined I had to understand it and uh, now I think I can... I I do not understand it, but I've managed to lead many people by one means or another through my exhortation or my writing to climb up to the rim and have a look over. And it has been established by a, a tiny but vocal minority as a true... a phenomenon, a fact of this world... And so then any cultural dialogue that goes on to some degree must assimilate it. If any point of view which ignores this is not addressing the full spectrum of reality as to what to make of it, I have no idea what to make of it. This is my life's struggle to know what to make of it. It is impossible and yet occurs. Uh, and, you know, it transcends ordinary emotions. You can't say you're afraid of it, or you love it, or you fear it. You know, it's just appalling, that's all. It's, it, it, it shatters all illusions of a stable, coherent, understood, manageable uh, universe and says, no, 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 that's just a fiction told around the campfire. What's true is this thing where, that English can't even approach, you know? We are just, English and all other descriptive approaches are simply melted and blown back from the strangeness of it. And yet, you know, having said all that about it, It's just one toke away. And it's just one toke away, and then ten minutes after that, you're back. So it's like this bizarre thing. I mean, people go to the Himalayas. They don't screw for 20 years. They eat bad food. They journey here. They journey there. They stick pins in themselves. They stand on their heads. And... Uh, This thing is just waiting, you know, one large inhalation away and pretty incontrovertible. In other words, its most spectacular effects occur when used on doubters, you know, (laughs) how we love to watch them twitch there on the floor after having announced that drugs don't really do anything. You know, well, here's one that does something. Try this on for size, um, and then it's just a matter, I guess, once you arrive at that place. Uh, I, I, I guess I should say this: it's sort of the game changes. You know, we talked a lot this morning and last night about juvenileization and neoteny and all that. Well, it's very, very easy to be a seeker. It's a fool's game, you know, and archetypically the seeker is always a bit of a fool. I mean, what is required of the seeker? Basically nothing but a strong stomach uh, for authoritarianism. Uh, uh, You just keep looking, you know, this teacher, that method, this ashram, that dojo, whatever. Seek, seek, seek. And after you've sought for 20, 30 years, it's pretty easy to assume that uh, there's no reason to expect you'll ever get anywhere. Uh, Well, DMT changes the nature of the game. DMT is not about seeking the answer. It like, it is the answer. And so once you have, by chance or design, encountered it or even the rumor of it uh, the game becomes quite a bit more grown up now you have to face the answer you found it no more trips to Ceylon are necessary no more journeys down to be with Don so and so or any of that malarkey you can just put that on the shelf now you're now an adult, you have entered the big time. Uh, n- no opening of chakras or revelation of shastras or passing of mantras or, you know, building of yantras is going to carry you any further than where you finally arrived. You have found the answer. Now you have to face it. And people hate that. It's appalling. It doesn't feel like fun at all. It's like, you know, oh, the answer, here it is, what to do with it. And I, the, I don't know what to do with it, you know? Kathleen?
4: Did you find other mixtures
1: that extended that experience besides I am also any MAO if your MAO is inhibited uh, for the rest of you this is an enzyme system that operates in the guts normally DMT is destroyed in the intestine but if you pre-treat yourself with a monoamine oxidase inhibitor it will survive in the guts and pass into the bloodstream and hence into the brain so ayahuasca yahe These things are strategies for making DMT orally active. Any MAO inhibitor will make you hypersensitive to psychoactive tryptamines. But I think it's important to follow the tradition of these South American shamans because some of these MAO inhibitors are too strong. Some last days, some weeks... The uh, compound in ayahuasca that is doing the MAO inhibition is harmine. It's known, its pharmacological profile is that it's it's reversible in four to six hours. Great, perfect, exactly the right time window because you don't want a 12, 36, 48, 72-hour trip, nor do you presumably if you're trying to get away from this flash effect of DMT, do you want a 3, 4, 5, 10-minute trip? So a 4 to 6-hour MAO inhibition uh, is just about right. Can you
3: recommend a source of harmine?
1: A source of harmine? Um, uh, Well, I'd rather recommend a source of harmaline. A, a near, a close relative compound, and the reason for that is harmine, which is what actually occurs in Banisteriopsis copy, is some has uh, as one of its effects, it tends to cause nausea. Harmaline is much less active on the stomach, uh, and a, an excellent source of harmaline is uh, the seeds of Pagamon harmala. Pagamon harmala is a a zygophilaceous shrub that grows naturally from Morocco to Manchuria. Huge stands of it exist in the American Southwest in places like Deming, New Mexico, and up near Lake Tahoe on Route 50. And uh, it produces a hard little black seed, which if you take uh, two grams of this seed, it will very effectively inhibit your monoamine oxidase. If you don't take it with a psychedelic, you will probably notice only a kind of sedating effect, nothing dramatic. But if you complex it with DMT, uh, it will turn on all the lights on the Christmas tree. Uh, Pergamum, P-E-R-G-A-M-U-M. Harmala, H-A-R-M-A-L-A. It's sold in uh, Iranian markets under the name Hermal and is used as an incense. So uh,
4: it's also in the Allies catalog, although he's selling
1: the uh-huh. what well, it for a reason. Why? Uh huh. Such a small amount on that list that I set up. The first one is Allies. All right. Do not take more than two grams of this. It works. uh Now, to be fair, and to, you know, if you're going to start doing this, I mean, you really should, uh, there's a lot of homework and scholarship, a little chemistry, a little botany, Uh, you really should try to inform yourself about what's going on, because you're taking charge of your spiritual existence, you know, uh, these are the tools, these are the means, know the tools, know the means, and then you won't screw up. Yeah. What you have to do
2: is, is look at like the all uh, drugs uh, news groups on the internet and you'll see how reckless people can be and how misinformed about these things. So, you know, it really huge to try to do this and also inform other people because there's a lot.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of bad information around yeah. Is there
4: any, like, one book or a couple of books where you can fully inform yourself about
1: some stuff? Well, there are some books are more trustworthy than others. For example, uh, Jonathan Ott is a meticulous scholar, uh, very rarely makes technical mistakes, so he's one person to look at. Uh, there aren't a lot of how to do it manuals in drug taking because it's a thankless task for an author. You just gain social disgrace, you know. Uh, there are some lists on the internet, like at Lyceum, there are very large data archives maintained and people with an interest in keeping the integrity of the data high. But never Trust, I mean, always, you know, as Gorbachev said, trust but verify. Because it's not like if you get your mantra wrong, something terrible will happen. But if you get your molecule wrong, something terrible well might happen. So you have to be more careful and more responsible because these things actually work. The way I think of the... Categories of these psychedelics, if you I and mean, people have done different maps of it, but the way I think about it is like a bullseye, like a target, and in the center is DMT. And I'm on record, I guess, as saying if you can get more loaded than that, I don't want to know about it. <laughs>
0: uh, however,
1: now we, you should never, never say never. Uh, So, DMT at the center of the bullseye, then around that, next circle out, high dose psilocybin, 8 grams and up. 8 grams and up. Then around that, uh, high dose LSD, mescaline, and it, it gets, it fades out. And dose is very important. In other words, you know, there are people running around who took psychedelics once and think then that they should pontificate about it. You know, 100 gamma of LSD is nothing like 500 gamma of LSD. And 500 gamma of LSD is not putting the system at risk at all. And yet, it's certainly putting people's psychology and self-image at risk. I mean, they assume they'll never live to tell the tale, usually, uh, in these cautious days, anyway. Uh, But the organism is not at risk. Uh, You know, a lot of people take mushrooms at, at very low doses, half gram, one gram, two gram. For them, they think that's getting spectacular for a 145-pound person, the action begins at five dried grams and goes up from there and quickly becomes unenglishable and completely difficult to convey back. Um, as long as we're on this subject, I suppose, and in the interests of staying current, as some of you probably know, in the last several years an entirely new psychedelic has appeared on the scene completely confounding both psychedelic enthusiasts uh, order freaks the law, the chemists everybody Uh, I'm speaking of Salvia Divinorum and its active principle Alpha Salvanorine if you are so a soul of such rectitude that you've been putting off doing psychedelics because they're illegal, uh, this is the one for you. It's not illegal. It's legal. It's as legal as little green apples are legal. As long as everyone... Well, I don't know. I don't know whether... It may even just be legal. In other words to suppress this would, at this point in the drug dialogue, would cost the other side a lot of effort and credibility and probably the effort would fail. Uh, uh, Almost everything about Salvia Divinorum is unusual. First of all, it's not an alkaloid. All other psychedelics, true psychedelics, are alkaloids with the single exception of mescaline. Mescaline is, a, is an amphetamine, uh, very close to alkaloids. The compound that's active in, alpha, in salvia divinorum, alpha-salvinorine, is a diterpene, not an alkaloid the only psychoactive diterpene ever discovered. So that's one thing unusual about it. Another thing unusual about it is uh, it's active under one milligram. Now, that means that approximately 800 micrograms of this stuff is the effective dose. This is in the LSD range, except LSD you took orally. This you smoke. When you talk about smoking 800 micrograms of material, we're talking about a very small grain of salt. So the potential for overdose on the pure compound is almost inevitable. How uh, does it compare to the Well, again, what... I I have not had the guts to smoke the pure compound, having watched people melt and twitch fairly dramatically. Uh, DMT test pilots come back ashen, Uh, white-knuckled. I chew the stuff. I chew 35 grams of it in darkness and then spit it out when I feel it begin to come on it's absolutely remarkable how powerful it is I mean you're lying there thinking this can't be legal you know I mean this this actually works yes has
2: this actually um, been extracted or synthesized I was just thinking of that as far as then the legal implications because if it were to become extracted that would I think uh, it, it's difficult to kind of nail this, you know. Just
1: I don't know if it's been it. synthesized. It's been extracted. Uh, I think that it's a very interesting situation for our community. This stuff is not illegal. Uh, if we want it to remain legal, uh, we should not provide horrific examples of its abuse. Now, it seems like in in that effort it's doing its part to aid us. People are appalled by this stuff. I mean, people who style themselves hardcore after one pass near this just say, yeah, it did dissolve reality. Yes, it did blow my mind. But they don't come out of it clawing to do it again. Uh, But I don't say a psychedelic has to be... Uh, pleasant to do its work. What its what its mission is is to dissolve boundaries and uh, and conditioning.
2: But you're using as part of your definition of being a psychedelic too. That was the other question I had. So what categorizes that?
1: Well, f- uh, 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 there's just a certain um, uh, uh, clarity of vision that if you get that i think you have to call it psychedelic uh, for instance ketamine ketamine doesn't isn't isn't a psychedelic it's a something it messes with your mind for sure and it certainly dissolves boundaries and on and on and on but it 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 occludes in some way i mean it is after all an anesthetic its purpose is to knock you out if higher consciousness lies in the direction of anesthesia, what is higher consciousness? <laughs> uh, so, and, but the the uh, salvia divinorum, uh, and it's used shamanically in Mexico, and the plant is easily grown and transported. I think it would be a fine notion for people who are interested in all these things Uh to grow and cultivate this stuff and come to terms with it, it's a it's uh, it's very interesting to me that so late in this psychedelic game, an entire new compound in an entire new family could be found, and of course now that it's been found, they're going into its botanical sources with extremely subtle, non-destructive analytical methods like high-pressure liquid gas chromatography and this sort of thing. And lo and behold, there's an entire family, a little solar system of these diterpene compounds that are psychoactive. Well, what are these? Are these the... Drugs of addiction and abuse of the future, or are they the source of new tranquilizers, new treatments for mental illness? Nobody knows. It's just sitting there. So, you know, if you're looking for a career in pharmacology or medical research or something like that, this is very hot at the the moment. And if we needed to produce metric tons of this material for any purpose... It could be easily done. There's no theory.
3: Your your perspective on the importance of set and setting and and how did your view of that evolve?
1: Well, I I think set and setting are extremely important. Just to review, you know, uh, the setting is where you are when you do it, a psychedelic, and the set is your mindset, what you bring to it. And these seem to be the the, the rule these are tim leary 's rules are back from the Harvard days, and people abuse these these rules terribly and almost always then get into trouble. This goes under the heading of don't be an idiot uh, don 't be foolish uh, let 's talk about the setting first of all. I think the worst setting for taking drugs is complex social environments, (laughs) especially public social environments. So in spite of the grand tradition to the contrary, I think rock concerts, uh, LA free, free, yeah, heavy, uh, driving. You know, I've had people ask me about mushrooms or even DMT. Uh, Well, if I take it, will I be able to drive? well, what kind of half-wit are you? (laughs) (laughs) You know, just give it a rest for crying out loud. No, if you smoke DMT for those 10 minutes, just leave your Ferrari parked, please.
2: Uh, uh, Dosage of psilocybin, like you said before, you know, approved visual acuity and those things. So there you could argue that you do have an edge in, in perceptual space that could be...
1: I think you really have to know yourself and your dose levels. I mean, I've experimented over the years, because I've been at this for who knows how long, so there's been plenty of time to experiment. And There were times when I would, I would just, to see what it would do, I would take half a gram of mushrooms a day, and, and, or one mushroom, one gram of mushrooms a day. I hated all these states. I quickly abandoned all these experiments because all I could do with those kinds of doses was it made me anxious. It made me think a lot about the fact that I wasn't really high, but it was rougher than coffee and just was uh, kind of crazy-making. And so I, I believe in large doses rarely I think that's what's effective and the people want to tiptoe in if you're a tiptoe inner back to the ashram for you (laughs) this is no game for those who wish to tiptoe because those are dangerous areas those shallow waters most psychedelic people, I think, would agree. Where it's it's not the high dose that blasts your world to smithereens that leaves people upset and confused. That's usually experienced as a kind of liberation. What leaves people upset and confused is to get half in and half out and not be able to come contact the transcendent but to have all their baggage in there with them fully illuminated and then Uh, you know, other people complicated. I find other people very complicating. Other people, it just stands to reason, are the most complicated objects in your universe. And, you know, when I'm stoned on seven or eight grams of psilocybin, for me to be able to handle a chunk of orange without getting excited to the point of hysteria (laughs) is... So let alone having somebody maybe want to have sex with you or maybe want to discuss their bad trip with you or maybe want to move from here down to the beach or maybe want... And just say, you know, go away, please. So do you recommend doing it alone or what
3: about
1: Well, I, I tend to recommend to do it alone. But I know it's dangerous advice. And when I was young, I, it was a long time. I, I can't really even remember when it was that I settled in on that. Because at first, when we encountered LSD, you would never have done it alone. I mean, it was always your friends, the party, the 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 band, the the something or other but i just had too many lsd trips like that where i came down holding my head saying you know i'm i've been fucked with basically because i let other people into my head and you know to me and maybe this is you know i am a double scorpio and reclusive and all this you got to take it with a grain of salt but i remember times in Berkeley when I would take acid in my apartment on telegraph and then I would try to go to the med and I would get out on the sidewalk and then maybe I'd the first person I'd pass was sort of okay, sort of normal looking (laughs) but then the next person and you say oh boy you know I shouldn't be out in public, you know this is way, 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 way over and uh, the other thing is and I don't pretend to understand this but any psychedelic voyager will tell you this is true synchronicity goes mad on these things so it's you can maybe control synchronicity if you've double locked your doors unplugged your telephone and got your head down under the covers it's still pretty hard to manage but you know if you go out bank robberies will be committed in front of you your grandmother who lives in Hong Kong will choose to visit unannounced that day uh, and endless until finally you just so, so my approach and, and on the guide question I think that until you're really confident you shouldn't do it alone but the guide should be so locked down and controlled that my idea of how to do the guide is okay. I'm going to take 6 grams of mushrooms I will be in this room Uh, here is a closed door you be on the other side of this closed door and if I ring this bell three times you may open the door a crack and say what (laughs) that's the guide <laughs> the idea I mean I've heard people say you know I, I, I took Mushrooms, and I was just beginning to work it out, and then the guide said, Well, now remember, you wanted to work on some issues uh, while you were loaded. Now, uh, what about your impending gum surgery, divorce, bankruptcy? And, and you just saying, uh, <laughs> You know, I, I was touching God. Do you mind? So. <clears throat> So yes,
4: Kathleen. There's another thing about a person; it should be someone that you that you value and trust, you know their integrity, but preferably someone that you're not emotionally involved with because you tend to come out and want to draw them in.
3: It distorts the uh, it, it distorts it. That's an interesting perspective too.
1: Yeah. And now, now there is another approach. People who think you know having marital difficulties everybody should drop acid and call in the kids and there but i think you can just i don't see it as a i i see it as a holy function not if you know psychotherapy can do this or mdma can do this we have other tools for doing this but these psychedelics uh, it's it's like It's like using uh, I don't know some enormous instrumentality for some trivial thing. So the the, and then the uh, so that's a lot about uh, uh, setting.
0: You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Before I make any other comments, I'd like to point out that this talk was given in 1997. And at the time, as you heard Terence say, there actually wasn't uh, very much reliable information about psychedelic substances available on the internet. However, things today are vastly different, and the very first place that you should go to begin investigating any psychoactive substance is Erowid. That's e r o w i d .dot org. .dot org. I can't speak highly enough for uh, this source of information. I know many of the people involved with Arrowhead, and you can trust their information on the website implicitly. And one more thing here. Uh, we just heard Terrence say that Salvia divinorum is legal, which it was back in 1997. And it still is unscheduled under the federal law. However, there are many states that do regulate this plant. And again, you can find the up-to-date information about that at Arrowhead.org. Now, each week, I try to extract something from these Terrence McKenna talks that, for one reason or another, tickles my mind. And uh, this week was a real winner for me. <laughs> now, if this little tidbit slipped by you, well, that's very understandable. However, if you had an aha moment, and an aha moment with a big grin on your face like me, well, then you may be more like me than is <laughs> than is really good for you. But uh, this week's little factoid about Terence McKenna is one that I truly love. And uh, I did check this out as best I can, and it appears to be true that Terence McKenna, Captain Beefheart, and Frank Zappa all went to the same high school. Not at the same time, but definitely the same school. Uh, for those three minds to go through a public high school in the U.S. with, well, without being completely shut down and put in boxes... Well, it most certainly was an exceptional place. Uh, I guess that's all I can say. Now, Terence's mention of Country Joe and the Fish brought back to mind uh, this wonderful woman who, back in the day, was Country Joe's wife. And it was she who came up with that meme about smoking banana peels to get high. <laughs> she never really got proper credit for that, uh, nor did anyone ever learn her recipe for making DMT in a bathtub. Uh, Actually, now that I think of it, uh, for some people, uh, (laughs) maybe not us guys in the military at the time, but for some people, the 60s were actually a pretty good time, uh, at least for a few years. Now, I didn't know Country Joe's wife back then, but later, when we did get to know one another a little bit, I couldn't get enough of her great stories. And now that I'm thinking of it, at the end of today's podcast, I'm going to play Country Joe's great anti-war anthem. I first heard it when I was still on active duty with the Navy and uh, had already returned from a Vietnam deployment. And as the next few years progressed, there were many times when I got together with some vet friends and uh, after a few beers, we'd all join in the chorus and sing. And it's one, two, three, what are we fighting for? Don't ask me, I don't give a damn. The next stop is Vietnam. And it's five, six, seven, open up the pearly gates. Well, there ain't no time to wonder why. Whoopee, we're all going to (laughs) die. And I realize that today that may sound somewhat inappropriate. However, uh, just ask your military friends, you know, your warrior friends. And I'm sure that a few of them are going to tell you that without a little black humor, they never would have made it. I hope that when we begin podcasting the Psychedelic Salon 2.0 programs, that some of them will feature today's protest songs. We aren't going to hear them on mainstream media, but I'm sure that today's military veterans have their own underground singers who are bringing the essence of today's wars to their audiences. And I'd be shocked if there wasn't a vibrant group of musicians creating music for the Black Lives Matter projects. We need to learn about these musicians and learn their songs and uh, sing them out like we did in the 60s. You know, laughter and music are two weapons that the screwheads in the government can't stop. By the way, uh, I'm sure that you've noticed all of the buzz about artificial intelligence, about AI and bots, uh, lately it's been all over the place in the mainstream press. Well, we just now heard Terence McKenna talking about bots back in 1997. He was uh, truly ahead of his time. Do you uh, also remember in the early part of this talk that Terence said our imaginations, while in a psychedelic state, are possibly communicating with alien intelligences? Well, uh, it seems to me that this could be another way of thinking about uh, what some of us from time to time have experienced as entities while in a deep psychedelic state. Until now, I hadn't actually given much thought as to what those entities could be uh, if they were in fact real and not just some wild projection of my own mind. The few such experiences that I have had were so far out of the range of my normal thought processes that they certainly did seem to have their origins uh, somewhere outside of me. But since I know that many of us sometimes uh, think that our brains may be more like an antenna than a computer, then uh, it's kind of fun to think that perhaps these entities are possibly like our cosmic pen pals whom we can tune in when we're in the right frame of mind with the right molecules fitting the right receptors? Uh, Well, at least these things are fun to talk about late at night, uh, especially with a good supply of cannabis at hand. Another uh, McKenna rap that came up this time, but which we haven't heard for a while here in the salon, was the one about asking the mushroom to show itself for what it was. And then he mentioned how the black drapes appeared and so on. Well, uh, as dramatic as that story is when Terence tells it, I have to admit that uh, many years before I first heard him tell that story, I had my own experience of a entity revealing itself for what it was. And as strange as this may be, there actually were black drapes involved in that experience. Now I won't go into the details, but I basically shut the whole experience down because it was becoming so intense. And, uh, interestingly, uh, whatever that essence was, as soon as I said enough, it, uh, yeah, well, it backed down. Nonetheless, uh, well, it's not something that I'd ever want to experience again, and yet it wasn't really frightening in the normal sense. It was just an experience of so much light and power and energy that it was more than I wanted to become involved with. At the time, it seemed that moving further into the experience would risk permanent madness or something. Uh, And if you're wondering what I was on, well, (laughs) of all things, it was ayahuasca. Oh, uh, before I forget it, last week I talked about the new documentary, Shamans of the Global Village. Well, I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure, I think that it was in that movie where I learned for the very first time that there actually is a huge difference between what is commonly called ayahuasca and what is called yahe, up until now I bought into the line that Yahe was just another word for ayahuasca. That seemed to be what everybody said. Well, in a way that's correct, but while the primary psychoactive in ayahuasca is NN DMT, in Yahe, apparently it is five MEO DMT. And that, if correct, can certainly explain the negative reaction of Burroughs' friends in his Yahe letters. And I think this could also be an interesting investigation for a dissertation, perhaps for someone who wants to establish herself or himself in the uh, scientific psychedelic community. Now, early on in today's talk, we heard Terrence say, and I quote, I think that every single one of us should be learning how to expand our communications skills. It's not about rejecting the media or the marketplace. It's about changing your relationship to it. Do not consume, produce, inject your own art, end quote. And uh, that, I believe, is the ultimate function of our fellow saloners who have begun to come together to discuss what we think should be the future of the 2.0 version of the salon. It's still a very small group, so if you want to have your voice heard on these issues, well, now is a really good time to join our team. Just go to psychedelic salon 2o. that's all one word lowercase psychedelic salon number two number team, and uh, register for our slack.com project team. And by the way, you don't have to be a geek to help. Right now we're just at the stage where we're kicking around a number of issues and ideas uh, that we have for the future. In fact, uh, maybe you're interested in moving forward on Terrence's idea for a prize for the best psychedelic simulation and virtual reality. Well, if so, then let's hear your ideas about it. Well, that's going to be it for today. So, uh, in a minute here, or a few seconds actually, I'm going to play Country Joe for you. And I'd like you to join me in singing along with Country Joe and the fish for the anthem that they made famous at Woodstock. Uh, at the time, I was still in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, searching for the lost submarine USS Scorpion, and so I missed Woodstock. But I didn't miss the spirit of that festival, nor did you, I should add. Otherwise, you wouldn't even be here in the salon with me right now. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>
4: Well, come on, all of you big, strong men. Uncle Sam, need your help again. Got himself in a terrible jam. Way down yonder in Vietnam. Put down your books and pick up a gun. We're gonna have a whole lot of fun. And it's one, two, three. What are we fighting for? Don't ask me, I don't give a damn. The next stop is Vietnam. And it's five, six, seven. Open up the pearly gates. Well, there ain't no time. Wonder why we all gonna die? Now come on Wall Street, don't be slow. Why, man, this swore war go go. There's plenty of good money to be made. Supplying the army with the tools of the trade. Just over the to get the drop the bomb, drop it on the Vietcong. P- and it's one two three, what are we fighting for? Don't ask me, I don't give a damn. The next stop is Vietnam. And it's five six seven, Open up the pearly gates. Well. Wonder why we all gonna die. Now come on, generals, let's move fast. Your big chance is here at last. Now you can go out and get those reds. Cause the only good commie is one that's dead. And you know that peace can only be one when you're blown the blown wall kingdom comes, sing it. One, two, three. What are we fighting for? Don't ask now, don't get them louder. Give expect to ever stop the war if you can't sing any better than that. There's about 300,000 of you fuckers out there. I want you to start singing. Come on. And it's one, two, three. What are we fighting for? Don't ask me I Don't give a damn. The next stop is Vietnam. And it's five, six, seven. up 30 38. Well, I ain't no time to wonder why. Whoa, come on, guys. Now come on, mothers, stop the land your boys off to Vietnam. come on fathers, don't hesitate, the same son's off the floor it's too late, be the first one, on your block, and forth, and hold on to the glass, alright, one, two, three, what are we fighting for, don't ask me how, don't go down, the next stop is Vietnam. and it's five, six, seven, four!
3: Please.